My name is Frank Finlay. I'm Professor of German Language and Literature and Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at the University of Leeds, which is the main academic partner of the festival. So, Bauhaus. In the post-war chaos of 1918-1990, when Berlin was in the grip of violent fighting between paramilitaries on the right and left, the newly elected German National Assembly chose to meet, not as you might have expected in the Reichstag in Berlin, but in the theatre of the city of Weimar. city of Weimar, best known even today as the home to Goethe and Schiller, the epicentre of German classicism, of cosmopolitan humanity, um, a place unlike the authoritarian and militaristic Berlin. This was no coincidence. The inspiration of the new republic drew on this ethical and intellectual authority, which the place of Weimar confirmed. How fragile and perhaps naive a belief that was to be was proven only 14 years later after the Bauhaus was dissolved in 1937 when the notorious concentration camp of Buchenwald opened <coughs> only five miles northwest of the city. Now, on the wall of the National Theatre, there's a plaque in bronze which records the occasion, which says something to the effect that this is where the National Assembly met. And it's in bold, clear lettering that was designed by the architect Walter Gropius. And in the same year, he himself established another new institution, arguably inspired by the same historic human German values. The radically interdisciplinary school of architecture, art and design, now known throughout the world as Bauhaus. Like the Weimar Republic, the Bauhaus would draw, as I said, on these positive German values in a, in a utopian project to try and shape the new society after the carnage of the First World War. It's often said, and that's perhaps something that will be challenged a little <coughs> this afternoon, that the Bauhaus was one of the single most influential cultural movements of the 20th century. Today, our cities, our furniture, our typography, myriad household artifacts are arguably unthinkable without the functional elegance pioneered by Gropius and the Bauhaus tutors and students. So it is a great pleasure for me today to introduce our two speakers. Alan Powers is, will be a, our first speaker to present. He took a degree in the history of art at Cambridge and received his doctorate on architectural education in Britain, 1880 to 1914. Alan is a prolific writer for magazines. He's an author of numerous books. He's joint editor of the Journal of 20th Century Architecture and joint editor of the monograph series 20th Century Architects. He's curated popular ex uh, exhibitions, including Modern Britain, 1929 to 1939, at the Design Museum. At the moment, he teaches um, architectural history and theory for undergraduates at the London School <coughs> of Architecture. Alan's a former chair of the 20th Century Society. I think, uh, as you can tell from my introduction, um, an, an expert in 20th century architecture who was awarded an honorary fellowship of the Royal Institute of British Architects. To my left is Grant Watson. 
Grant is a curator and researcher based in London. Um, he's a tutor on the con Curating Contemporary Art Programme at the Royal College of Art and specialises in curatorial theory. Grant was the senior curator at the Institute of International Visual Arts in London, curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Antwerp, and curator of visual arts at Project Dublin. Since the late 1990s, he's worked with modern contemporary art from India. He has a number of um, um, specialist uh, and ambitious projects on textile and textile industries, not least in relation to, in, uh, to India. And the reason he's here today, I guess, is not just because of all of that, but because he is co-curator of Bauhaus Imaginisti. This is a three-year project to mark the centenary um, of the Bauhaus. It's currently touring. It's at the Paul Clay Centre in Switzerland, and part of it is in the Nottingham Contemporary. And we were just talking um, at the outset how um, it's quite an accolade if you're, if you're British-based to be welcomed into the cultural scene of Germany and to be charged with the responsibility of co-curating an exhibition about one of the most iconic art schools in that um, nation's history. So, those are our introductions. I'll hand over now to Alan and his presentation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Frank. Um, I need to get through this quite fast. Um, and uh, Frank asked me if I'd fill in a bit more about what the Bauhaus was. Uh, this could take the whole session. Um, the, uh, it, it was um, a kind of collection of different pieces that already existed in the German and English art school systems to quite a large extent, rather more than people are prepared to allow, but it was the way they were put together that was new. The uh, coining of this name, which has been resounding ever since, um, uh, which was very clever, because otherwise it would have been called the uh, Staatliches Kunstgewerbe Schule und Kunstakademie Weimar, or something of that <laughs> sort. And um, <coughs> uh, Mies van der Rohe, the architect, said the best thing Gropius ever did was invent the name Bauhaus. Uh, so um, it had a, a quite a rocky ride. Uh, it was funded by the two cities where it existed, uh, first in Weimar and then in Dessau. Uh, and in both cases, the politics turned against them, and they said, who are these layabouts that we're paying? Um, we should get rid of them. Uh, so it had a final, very brief existence in Berlin before uh, Mies van der Rohe, the final director, shut it down. Um, many famous names were associated with it, but I think also one has to reckon that some of them are famous because of their association rather than the other <laughs> way around. Uh, so really, my, my issue is with the, uh, the historiography of the Bauhaus, the... Uh, myth of the Bauhaus, um, the way it has, uh, I think, distorted our view of the period. When I chose this title, Bauhaus Goes West, it was in some ways literal. It was about people traveling westwards from Germany to Britain and America. But it also has that um, uh, slang meaning, go west, particularly used in the war for crashing um, disaster of some kind or another. And uh, that is somehow inherent in my treatment as well. Uh, uh, sorry, I'll go back to that. Uh, it is said that Gertrude Stein, on her deathbed, said, first of all, what is the answer? And then, a little while later, she said, what is the question? Uh, so that has rather stimulated this thought that um, uh, we need to know what 
question the Bauhaus thought it was answering and whether it actually found the answer or not, whether it enacted it. But I'm starting with a rather long text. There's no way you will read all this, but it's from a, a review uh, by Barry Bergdahl, a Bauhaus expert, pointing out, as the top line says, that there's been at least 10 years in which there's been a lot of chipping away at this monolith. Uh, he says, by American historians, a number of German historians have been doing it as well, that you know, a lot of this doesn't quite stack up the way we think. You can go to the evidence, you can also look at the transmission. Uh, so um, it doesn't cease to be interesting, but uh, it still lays itself open. Uh, contrast this with the building of museums in Weimar and Dessau this year to, to glorify the Bauhaus with a lot of um, funding behind them. It has become something we can't afford not to have, as it were, as a cultural marker. So these two things are rather in conflict with each other. It's, it's ballooned into something that is a huge sort of uh, edifice, but it's also, the, there are reasons to question it. Um, so these, these are my words here. Uh, and uh, did the Bauhaus answer the question? Um, if it didn't answer the question, as it were, if it didn't achieve what it set out to achieve, I think it's actually more interesting than if we assume that it did achieve it. And my feeling is that it didn't achieve it. Uh, but we have gone around thinking that it did because they were so good at telling us that. Um, so uh, it's much more diverse, much more individualistic. You can unpack it and see that it's full of contradiction in its own terms. And uh, it's partly national, partly international, but we need to see it in its time rather than assume uh, that everything has been influenced by it ever since. Uh, Frank said, arguably, you know, all the things we have are influenced by the Bauhaus. Well, they may be or they may not, but they would have been much the same if the Bauhaus had never existed. Uh, you can take it out of the history and nothing much changes, in my view. Uh, here is a quote from Hannes Meyer, who became second director after Walter Gropius uh, resigned. Uh, Hannes Meyer was very quickly written out of the story. There's been quite a lot of attempt to put him back again, but he's still uh, not there in any sense uh, equivalent to Gropius. But what's interesting is here he is writing to the mayor of Dessau, who was very supportive, saying that he came into this school and it, it was sort of a mess. You know, they didn't know what they were doing at the point where the historians would have us believe that it had reached its pinnacle of, of sort of stability and coherence. So he knew what he was talking about. I fought against the very Bauhaus style. And this is a recent comment from this year um, saying, and I love this one, under Hannes Meyer, the Bauhaus concept was finally realized. The Bauhaus became, becomes the first school that trains designers for industrial production. That's what they said they were doing all along. One might thus formulate the paradoxical statement that the Bauhaus could only turn into the Bauhaus by turning its back on the Bauhaus concept. You can see this is tricky stuff, um, but uh, you know we've been made to believe one thing that isn't really quite the real thing. So what was their question, uh, qua Bauhaus? Um, the big issue was, uh, and this comes, this is a quote from Gropius. He asked at one point, does technology need art or does art need technology? Uh, his idea was that the two should go together that they sort of couldn't really exist without each other. Um, 
And secondary to this was the idea that uh, a, a mechanized society had lost its soul and that artists were probably the only people who could put it back again. It's very similar to the arts and crafts movement in Britain. So I put what is our question. Um, are these questions, the ones that they asked back then, based on category, category mistakes, uh, i.e. that art and technology could ever form, this is Gropius again, a famous quote, a new unity. Uh, they are not the same thing. You might try and make them, but that won't work, really. They are so different, and rightly so. Uh, you could say the thing that they were missing was a profession of industrial designer, which didn't yet exist. They were trying to create it, but went about it by a very strange way. Because um, they thought that sort of intuition and inspiration would create industrial design rather than research and prototyping. Um, is this idea of soul, putting the soul into the mechanized society, too simplistic and exclusive? Who are we to claim that we possess soul and they don't, if you like? Um, and finally, have we seen have we only seen the product? That's the easy bit. That's what you put in the museum display case. That's what you illustrate uh, in the book. Uh, the teacup, the textile, very nice things, but not unique. Other people were doing things very much like them. Um, we see that, but it's much, much harder to see the process, the interactions between people in the school. Uh, I think the stuff that actually really mattered was the formation of people, not the formation of objects. So if you like, the Bauhaus has been taken over by art history with its rules about what things look like, uh, whereas it is really part of educational and social history about how people are made. Uh, and on that level, uh, its contribution could be deemed more worthwhile. One final thing, though. My book is largely about things in Britain, and I admit that I... Um, used the Bauhaus as a sort of Trojan horse because I was writing about stuff that would never get in a book and I would never be here talking about it if I didn't have that magic word in the title. But uh, with good reason, because uh, we were doing things in Britain, Bauhaus people arrived here, you're still reading this this year in the press. Well, Britain was a bit rubbish, basically. Uh, these people arrived. We weren't quite good enough for them, so they left. Uh, we weren't that bad, let me tell you. Uh, but it's harder to see. It hasn't the story hasn't been put together, it doesn't have a brand. Uh, so I was putting <laughs> the pieces together so that at least it's possible to see we weren't that far away, we didn't, weren't doing it the same way, we had our own way of doing some of these things. Um, and I don't, think I don't want to sound sort of overly uh, nationalistic about it, but uh, in Britain and in many other countries there were things happening in that time that uh, you know, filled that space, if you like. So that's why I feel if we deflate the Bauhaus a bit, the shadow shrinks and we can see what has previously been obscured. So some challenging and provocative thoughts there. Thank you very much indeed. And I hand over now to Graham. Ah, here we go. Um, Yes, thank you. Um, so as, as Frank said, I was a British person invited into this sort of rather hallowed uh, context of the Bauhaus and invited by surprise to 
work on the centenary exhibition, <laughs> so the, the 100 year exhibition of the Bauhaus founding in 1919. Um, and I think following on also from what Alan said, within that invitation was a sort of maybe slightly paradoxical um, aspect because the, of course, this year in Germany, um, the Bauhaus is being celebrated here, there, and everywhere. The, the archives are um, turning into you know, larger museums. Um, but at the same time, the invitation for us was not to necessarily celebrate the Bauhaus in a conventional way, um, but to think about the legacy of the Bauhaus um, beyond the places where it's normally looked for. So, namely the United States and Europe, um, our, our, our invitation was to look at the Bauhaus, or to sort of look at the reception of the Bauhaus in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, um, which, is, which is what we did. And we were invited by three institutions, the Bauhaus Cooperation, which is the three archives in uh, Dessau, Berlin, and Weimar, the Goethe Institute, and uh, a space in Berlin called the House of World Cultures, to spend three years doing research into that, um, and then finally coming up with an exhibition in 2019. So of course this was on many levels quite a daunting proposition. You know, how do you engage with such an enormous variety of possible histories um, of Bauhaus reception? And I worked with a German curator called Marion van Osten, and I have to say that we, we don't come from a sort of Bauhaus specialism background. We come both come from actually a visual arts background. Um, and what I think they wanted us to do was to kind of think of a device in order to make this presentation and orient this research. And what we, um, what we decided to do was to go back to the Bauhaus itself and think about particular objects in the Bauhaus that we could use as starting points for uh, thematic and conceptual chapters. <laughs> So the first object we, we, we chose is rather an obvious one. It's the Bauhaus Manifesto, which you can see here in the slide, written by Gropius um, just after the war. He'd been fighting in the war, and he writes this manifesto, which is a sort of utopian call for an education system which will essentially change society and rebuild Germany after the destruction of the war. And in that manifesto, he talks about bringing all the crafts together in the unity of the building. So it's really about, um, on the one hand, um, kind of social transformation. On the other, it's bringing art and craft into a combined effort um, through the production of things um, to affect social change, which I think is, is quite an interesting proposition. It's a very, if you could read the text, it's a very utopian text. But then, in a rather German fashion, it's followed up by a very practical text about how they're going to do this. So the, the, the courses they're going to give, um, the kinds of people they want to come to the Bauhaus, the, the fee structure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we um, looked at the, uh, we used the manifesto to think about the education system at the Bauhaus. And in our exhibition, we um, made a display particularly around the preliminary course, which was a one-year course um, which established when students came into the school uh, their ability to engage with forms, colors, images, etc. But we didn't want to also think about the Bauhaus as the kind of point of departure for all forms of 
um, interesting and avant-garde education at that time. And so we juxtaposed the Bauhaus with two other schools. One was a school in India called Kalabhavan, which was established by Rabindranath Tagore in 1919. So in that sense, you can't think about um, the influence of the Bauhaus. You can think about parallels with the Bauhaus. And another school that was set up in Japan in 1931, um, which did actually involve uh, Bauhaus graduates in thinking through modern design in a Japanese context, but with a um, Bauhaus influence. I think I need to speed up. <laughs> but, um, the second uh, object that we chose was a small drawing by Paul Clay of a um, North African textile. And we use this to explore questions of cultural appropriation. So I think it goes back to maybe what Alan was saying. The Bauhaus didn't just invent new forms. It borrowed many forms. And many of the forms it borrowed actually came from other geographies. So they looked to North Africa. In the Bauhaus library, they had multiple books on um, ethnographic collections that were, that were in Berlin museums. Um, so they were interested in African sculpture, Peruvian textiles, and they incorporated this into their ideas about design. And in this chapter, we address a whole series of um, sort of legacies from the Bauhaus that continue with this, this process of cultural appropriation, with a particular focus on craft, on textiles and, and ceramics. The third object is a collage by Marcel Breuer called Ein Bauhaus Film. Um, and it was a collage that was published in the Bauhaus Journal in 1926. And the collage is um, a series of chairs that were designed by Breuer um, from 1921 to 1925. And this collage actually deals with the question of obsolescence at the Bauhaus. So the idea that the Bauhaus had a continuous and kind of coherent style is already being critiqued and uh, undermined by Breuer's collage. So he says, you know, in this short span of time, you go through quite a sort of dizzying uh, range of different styles, from expressionism to de Stiel, to a kind of modernist functionalism through to um, a future design which might involve um, the disappearance of the design object. And in this chapter, we look at um, we looked at a whole series of sort of genealogies of design that were taken up um, from the Bauhaus by people in places as far apart as the Soviet Union and India, and how those design principles get completely translated um, in relation to the needs of those particular settings. And the final um, object is a, it's a experimental apparatus that was made uh, for a Bauhaus party. So one of the things that Gropius emphasizes at the beginning of the Bauhaus is that there will be these kind of celebratory moments at which students and masters will come together and, and socialize in a convivial atmosphere. And of course, the Bauhaus took this extremely seriously and invested huge energy in costumes and masks and music and also kind of machines for making um, experiments with light and color. And one of them was by Kurt Schwertfeger, and it was um, projected in the apartment of Vasily Kandinsky in 1922. And from this, we looked at the whole sort of concept of experimentation in an, in an art school con context, and particularly at a kind of non-functional aspect of the Bauhaus. So when we think about the Bauhaus, we think about formalism, functionalism, utilitarianism. Um, 
but of course the Bauhaus had a sort of a playful aspect and a non-functional aspect, which is sort of in a way encapsulated by this object. Having said that, what we trace through this chapter um, is the way that those experiments get um, received in a commercial context, in the context of popular culture, and find a place in society in one way or another. And in this chapter, we um, look particularly at art schools and design schools in, in the United States um, and also in Britain. So in this chapter, we, we broke out of our brief, which was to look at particularly Asia, Latin America, and um, Africa. So yeah, so that's, the, that's our project. And uh, just to, just to briefly add, um, so we did one year of research in 2017 where we went to many different parts of the world and worked with a, a, a whole team of researchers. So we didn't do the research ourselves necessarily. In 2018, we made exhibitions in those countries and organized events. And then in 2019, we brought it all together at the House of World Cultures in, in Berlin. Thank you. So we, we, we move now to a little bit of um, conversation followed by the Q&A. Q and, and I should say there is an opportunity um, for you to get a signed copy of these two splendid books um, at the end of today's session. I say these two splendid books because they, with the anniversary, um, <coughs> it's kind of a crowded market out there in Bauhaus um, material, exhibitions, books, um, some of you might have seen the BBC4 documentary, and uh, the things that have crossed my desk. I, I have to say these are, these are really extremely valuable indeed. Anthony, um, I'd like to pick you up on, on your point. Um, not pick you up, but actually alight upon your, your point where you, you said kind of, okay, <coughs> let's almost think counterfactually. If it wasn't there, pretty much things would have remained the same. Things would have still developed. Um, I'd, I'd like to invite you to, to pursue that a little bit with some, some examples and illustrations from the, from the British um, art scene um, of, of the particular time. Um, I think famously Gropius referred to Britain as the land of fog and emotional nightmares and they didn't <laughs> hang around in, in Britain too long. They moved off to various parts of the world, particularly to the States in 1937. Um, many of the things they wished to do were just um, <coughs> not supported. So tell us a little bit about, as it were, the vernacular scene in, in Britain at that time. Yes. Um, well, when he said that, I think he was making the point. Fog, yes, you can't deny that. <laughs> um, emotional nightmares, well, I think, were maybe his rather than anybody else's, mm. but you know, everybody was disturbed at that yeah. time. Uh, but he would have known perfectly well, because he'd met all the people and visited the art schools involved, that uh, things were moving quite rapidly um, already in the 1920s uh, and then accelerating in the 1930s. Mm. The government um, put itself behind the cause of designing for industry, maybe not very effectively, but there, there was a, a network of people who were inside and outside official positions who worked on exhibitions and uh, within the art schools. So it was quite a coherent thing. The Design and Industries Association I'd written about quite a lot, which was a, uh, a, a very useful voluntary organization, but 
uh, the British <laughs> Institute of Industrial Art. Unfortunately, it had a very promising start in 1919, and then all their funding was cut, and they had to limp along, rather. But they put on shows of design by, you know, for example, Enid Marks, a textile designer I've also written a book on. When she was 24, her work was shown in the V&A as one of these official government-sponsored exhibitions, noted in the Times newspaper. Um, a major textile manufacturer, Frank Warner, said, I want to buy that. Um, and it's still in the Warner collection in, um, in Braintree. Uh, so that wasn't a unique occurrence. Uh, there was a, a very interesting movement in the crafts, the sort of arts and crafts movement Mark One was rather running out of steam, but new people like Bernard Leach uh, in pottery came along, who then um, helped uh, another generation, uh, Catherine Cladle Boothery, Michael Cardew, uh, from which really the whole English studio pottery movement um, developed. And uh, they had varying different attitudes about how much you should produce at what price and whether ind industry was relevant or not. Um, Woven textiles, Ethel Mare uh, trained a lot of young weavers, and she herself got very caught up in the Bauhaus and very excited by it uh, by the 1930s. Um, the Central School of Arts and Crafts in London, founded by W.R. Letherby, uh, you know, it had slightly inadequate premises and not some teachers who maybe weren't performing fully, but it's still the idea was there that uh, you went to an art school and you learnt crafts and you could translate that into some medium of production, uh, and the Royal College of Art picked it up. One of the most interesting experiments, sorry, I'm going on a bit, no, no, um, was at Camberwell School of Art, where there was a new head called William Johnston, and he, in his memoirs, says, this was about 1936, that he'd kind of worked out that you needed a different kind of training if you wanted industrial designers. The kind of public discourse was full of all this stuff about industrial design, and he said, okay, well, we'll, we'll have... Um, this course in which they, they learn the elements of form and then go on to apply it to specific subjects. So this was on the Bauhaus model, but he claims that he had never heard of the Bauhaus at that time, rightly or wrongly, but I think he, he was probably right. I don't think he would have um, made that up. So, uh, yes, it comes you know, quite late in the day, but it is sui generis. And then uh, Johnston went on to head the Central School after the war and invited fascinating range of people to come in then to, to teach. Uh, some emigres, but many of them uh, British people who'd sort of grown up with these modernist um, traditions by that time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's not the same. It's not all concentrated in one place. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there were people all in touch with each other, all working, I think, is the answer. Okay, thank you, thank you. Perhaps if I could linger back to, mm. to, to your project, listening to <coughs> your presentation and, and looking, looking at the book um, in the last week or so. It struck me that um, it fits into a broadly new approach in cultural studies that's mm. been around maybe for the last 10 or 15 years or so, though, which um, is often referred to as a transnational mm. term. Um, and your project, I think, very in a very adept and fascinating way, points up the the flows, the mm. circulation of yeah. ideas and concepts, and that this can be kind of a multi-directional one, that it's not just the Bauhaus exporting and it being received and appropriated and, and used, but it's actually receiving. 
yeah. uh, and the like. And uh, I wonder if you if you'd like to say just a little bit more about that. And possibly there's there's a linkage yeah. there to to the the transnationalism into into the, the British setting. Yeah, I think maybe following on from what Alan said, it's sort of, I mean, from the instances that we looked at, it wasn't a sort of case of all or nothing. You know, mm. either the Bauhaus was important or it was not important. It was. It seems to have been one f element in a kind of uh, a range of different sort of, sort of, you know, sort of streams of influence that helped to form particular schools or movements. Um, but you're right in terms of our project. It was very much about kind of sort of rethinking modernism outside of its 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 accepted geographic um, uh, the way that it's been kind of positioned very specifically in, as a European and American project. Um, so, for example, I mentioned very briefly the um, school that was set up by Rabindranath Tagore in 1919. Um, and that school opened the same year as the Bauhaus. Um, it, had s it shared some um, aspects with the Bauhaus, for example, an interest in uh, the arts and crafts movement. So the mm. arts and crafts movement both influenced the Bauhaus and influenced mm. um, Kalabavan. Um, so the work of Ruskin and Morris, um, it came through, through um, obviously through Britain's sort of colonial relationship to India, um, and a little bit like the Bauhaus, Kalabavan sort of was premised on the idea that you could sort of reform education as a way of changing mm. society. Mm. Um, in the Indian context, it was obviously about beginning the process of decolonizing mm. Indian culture through its education system. Um, uh, but it was, it w I mean, Kalabavan was set up as a, a modern, a school of modernist art and design. Um, I mean, there are other examples. So uh, the Kutamas in Moscow was set up the year after the Bauhaus in 1920. Um, it also had a preliminary course. Um, and it was also set up, like the Bauhaus, um, by combining a fine art and applied art school and bringing those two things together. So I think that meant, so the Bauhaus was sort of participating in a whole mm. stream of different kind of cultural ways of thinking about education, art, and design. Um, and in that sense, it wasn't unique. But what, what it did do is it brought, to get, it brought it together in a rather particular way, and it promoted it very effectively. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, if, if it wasn't unique, and that's something that's coming across um, very strongly, um, I wonder what the there were the drive for what you both talk of in terms of a utopian moment um, that underpins it. You, you, you said, I thought, wonderfully uh, interesting that in a way that um, Bauhaus has been taken over by the art historian is actually about something else than that. It's about creating a new person, a new, new, new social life. Um, and your reference is a response to mechanised um, society. But I wonder whether there isn't, if not unique, there's something special that appertains to the Bauhaus, namely that it comes out of the First World War. It's part of that movement that links back to, to expressionism. But as, a, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, it follows, unlike in the UK, a complete political and social military collapse, the abdication of the emperor, revolutionary circumstances and the like, and that, that search for the, the new, the neue Mensch, as it was called at the time, the new, new person. Is that something that is distinctive? Uh, uh, well, I think the, the change that the First World War effected was not one of kind, but one of degree. Right. They did things that they had been 
doing or dreaming before, but did them more intensively, and they mattered more yeah. uh, after the First World War. Uh, and uh, it, it's a very quick thing. There are about two or three years of what's sometimes called expressionism in architecture and drama, and, and then it sort of flips, as it were, and goes to the opposite end of the scale mm -hmm. from the hot to the cold. Uh, with uh, Neue Sachlichkeit. Mm -hmm. um, and that I can understand that as, you know, how you cope, mm. basically. It's a coping mechanism. You can't go on being crazy for, you know, more than about three years before you have to do something about it, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that energy is, is contained within what <laughs> comes next, certainly. But then there's a very strong uh, attempt to sort of scientize it. And this, I think, is one of the leading things, and it goes further back. Um, so that uh, ideas of evolution are very strongly present in the Breuer film strip. Mm. That's an evolutionary program, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but an absurdist one, because yeah. the final frame, the chair has vanished, and we know Breuer went on designing chairs, yeah. uh, and they didn't get more like sitting on a column of air, <laughs> as it happens, because you know we're not there yet, and I'm not sure we ever need to be. <laughs> chairs do quite a good job as they are. Um, so. Uh, from the, the evolutionary idea, I think there was a very strong um, sort of overtone of eugenics as well. Uh, the idea that we've got to breed out the bad and um, uh, breed in the good. Mm. Uh, and that uh, we're all sort of pushing together and um, keeping ourselves pure so that we can get to the final destination, which could be what you call the utopian moment, uh, which, if it arrived, was not at all the one they wanted. Mm. Uh, and I think, on the whole, it's a bad idea to want that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Did, did that play a role in some of the, the, the way the Bauhaus travelled? I think just to maybe add mm. on to this uh, the point that Alan was saying, is that it was also extremely conflicted environment. So mm. a lot of these ideas were played out um, as conflicts between strong individuals at the Bauhaus, so starting with this conflict between Itten and Gropius, I think, which was a point, because Itten, in a way, has come to represent this early expressionist moment, and the idea of self-development as, um, you know, the kind of new human as part of the, of the curriculum, as part of the, the um, preliminary course, has really, you know, included all sorts of exercises around kind of um, what we would now call self-care. Um, and then, you know, Gropius, because the school was always struggling financially, wanted to also introduce production of objects for sale, and eventually the, 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 the Bauhaus became a kind of limited company and started selling, making and selling its objects. And Itten disagreed with this um, entirely. And then the, the, the quote that Alan put up from Hannes Meyer, which I think was probably pu was published in the, the journal, in the Bauhaus mm. journal, um, where he critiques this kind of um, the Bauhaus style, this idea to create a kind of uh, a sort of universal language of forms and colors which could be applied to everything, you know, from textiles to toys. Um, uh, he, and, and he comes in with an, uh, another idea, which is that actually um, that the role of, of design and architecture is to organize life. So he comes up with this idea of life, which I would say would be a much more kind of secular notion um, and, and, and a critique of the idea of the sort of universal. Um, and then, you know, Hannes Meyer is deposed and uh, Mies van der Rohe comes in and that legacy is, is, is then kind of um, dismissed by Gropius and others. 
Um, so part of looking at the Bauhaus and part of looking at its legacy has been to see which bits of that legacy have been picked up and continued. Um, because um, when people look to the Bauhaus, often in the case studies that we researched, they didn't necessarily look at this whole Bauhaus. They took, they had a connection to Itten, for example. Mm. In, in India, there was a very strong connection to Itten. Mm. Um, or they were, they were sort of, you know, being taught by Gropius in Harvard. Um, so it, it actually, its influence is already kind of quite fragmented in, in mm. terms of its legacy. Mm. Could, could I ask you, it's been mentioned that there was a whole mythology in the historiography of the Bauhaus is sort of um, perpetuated certain, certain um, fixed narratives. Um, has our history is <coughs> got some responsibility in that particular predicament, do you think? Could have, have our historians all too readily um, read the memoirs and the document and, and the rest of it and, and as it were, swallowed whole what the, uh, the well Bauhaus folk were saying about themselves? To quite a large extent, and I mean, there are some a, a number of very good books on it, and mm. maybe some others that are a, a bit sort of shallow and mm. repeating things. But uh, very few of them ask the, the kind of deeper fundamental questions, mm. I think, uh, about was it really a good idea? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's too late to go back and change it, but mm -hmm. um, I think it's still important to, mm -hmm. to challenge it to that mm -hmm. level. Was Gropius competent? Mm -hmm. um, barely so, I think. he. Partly, the whole thing was so stressful just to keep it running was enough. Um, he made some brilliant appointments, but it was, it was a very unstable community, mm. and that was part of the energy. Uh, but the idea that it was this beautiful sort of perfected thing, which the objects may suggest from time to time, mm. doesn't really reflect the institution. Mm. Mm. So, so that begs the question then, and it's been touched upon already, what, are, what, what is the legacy? What are the key key determinants of, of, of the Bauhaus legacy? I mean, I think, t I think the part of it, I mean, I'm sure part of it is art historical, but I think a lot of it is also what Gropius was very brilliant at was promoting the Bauhaus. So, um, you know, this journal that he produced, the Bauhaus books, the Bauhaus films, he made a series, mm. a series of films were made, which were um, kind of propaganda films, really, about the Bauhaus. Um, all the Bauhaus exhibitions, which um, I guess, you know, from the 1938 MoMA exhibition, which sort of, you know, consolidated or, or started that consolidation of Bauhaus presence in America um, to the, the one in 1968, um, that there was a kind of um, continued uh, effort on the part of Gropius to frame the Bauhaus and to promote it and... Um, define its legacy. Mm. I think, in, I think this, the question about what is the Bauhaus legacy is, is a question that's always asked, and it's a really complicated one to answer. I don't, I don't know. And people sometimes say, oh, well, Ikea, you know, Ikea is the, is the, is the Bauhaus legacy. You know, this is what the Bauhaus strove for, achievable, you know, demo the democratization of design, affordable design. Bauhaus didn't necessarily achieve that in its own time. Um, I mean, there is a residue of Bauhaus in the education system. So, I mean, I, I, I went to art college and, and I had something like a kind of preliminary course training. Mm. Um, and I think the preliminary course is something which you can say, even though it wasn't a Bauhaus invention, it was definitely kind of brought together in a very coherent way at the Bauhaus. And it persists to this day, you know. Mm. So you do have that kind of preliminary course. 
workshop-based learning, I think, you know, the idea of um, learning through practice, I think these are things which are kind mm -hmm. of still circulating within mm -hmm. the education system mm -hmm. in, in very different forms. Um, I don't know, what do you think the Bauhaus legacy is? Um, well, <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a concept, a word, an ideal, yeah. uh, and, uh, and also this sort of, I, I think we shall, I hope we shall live to see a sort of gentle <laughs> lowering down of it. There have been times during that history when it almost disappeared from yeah. view, yeah. Uh, and uh, people got on. Well, and one of the arguments that's made was that its kind of rebirth was uh, very much powered by Cold War interests yeah. in the USA. That's true. Uh, it was taken up by American people operating in post-Nazi Germany as a, a sort of yeah. denazification cause and you know if the Nazis killed the Bauhaus then they you know the Bauhaus must be good um, none of it is quite as straightforward as that it's equated with democracy and freedom yes yes um, and they th then yeah. they went and founded the most sort of autocratic school in yes. its name uh, at Ulm but it's interesting actually no but Ulm I think what's interesting about Ulm is that Ulm was already contesting the Bauhaus in the 1950s. Mm. So there was an attempt after the Second World War to revive the Bauhaus and make a new Bauhaus. They wanted to call it the, Bau the new Bauhaus or the Bauhaus. Um, but immediately, and they brought in Max Bill to, to be the rector, but immediately Otto Eicher and others were saying, well, actually, no. I mean, the Bauhaus was actually really problematic as a model. You know, first of all, it was bringing in these artists into the realm of design where they, want, they aren't needed. Um, it had these kind of universal notions which mm. just don't make sense. Um, and um, they, they and Max Bill left, they kicked out the artists, and then they really focused on a completely different trajectory, which was about the, the idea of the, the industrial designer mm. as, a, as a kind of identity or as a, a design, a profession, mm. in a really new way, mm. yeah. Okay, um, I'm just looking at my little watch here on the coffee table and it's telling me that we've come to the end of this segment of this afternoon session and there's an opportunity now for you the audience to put some questions to our speakers we're going to put the lights up a little bit so that we can see you a little bit more clearly and there are <coughs> two roving mics and we have straight away a question a gentleman in the middle and if you could say whether your question is oh. to one or oh other it's or both to both speakers. of them did any of the Bauhaus staff stay in Britain or did they nearly all move to uh, America? And did we miss out a generation until we got to Conran and Dyson and Arup and Foster and uh, Rogers? Uh, right, well the answer is far more of them stayed than left, but they're not so well known. Um, and they did interesting and useful things. Two of them were heads of departments in art schools uh, others were eccentrics. Um, it's all in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Although I missed a few out. Um, if I allowed to revise it for a second edition, I'll, I'll bring it up to speed. Um, uh, Arup was of their generation. He was born in 1898 uh, and a brilliant figure operating in, Ger in Britain uh, <coughs> from the 1930s onwards. Um, uh, absolutely spot on. Uh, Conran you know, started pretty early on. Um, Dyson is a late comer and not a very worthy one in my view. Um, <laughs> uh, and who else do you have? Foster and Rogers. Well, they both trained under Serge Chemayev, who was appointed to succeed Maholi Naj at um, Chicago and then 
he was teaching at Yale by the time they arrived there, and they probably did take something from him, I think. Uh, but it's not necessarily the image of the building that you see. It's more about the social role, the um, idea of space that can be used in multiple different ways. Uh, other than that, we, we have many other things filling the space, if you like, between 1937-8 and 1965. Uh, and there's a very good exhibition just opened at the RIBA in Portland Place, London, which goes a little way to fill that gap. Again, my book has a few suggestions of what goes down that line. Basically, um, B for Bauhaus, B for boring. Uh, Bauhaus stands for dull buildings, and we really can't have enough of them. There's a, uh, you have two questions at the, the back of it. We have one here as well, don't we? So I'll, I'll come to you both at, afterwards. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, you commented on the fact that um, sort of modern design was happening anyway or would have happened anyway without the emigres coming over and bringing Bauhaus ideas. That's kind of not the mythology that I grew up with because my grandfather came over in 1933 and he was an, uh, a modern architect and he always used to tell us that he he felt like he'd returned <coughs> to the dark ages when he came to this country <laughs> and he you know he was deeply depressed because all the exciting stuff that he'd been involved with wasn't happening over here and there was an attempt made to do something about that the mars group um Modern Architectural Research Group, or whatever it was called. So I just, I was just curious to hear you say that because that's not the mythology that I grew up around in my family. Do tell me who was your grandfather? Oh, I'll tell you later. You won't have heard of him. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, uh, anyway, um, architecture is, is in some ways a problematic one. Um, 1933, there was more happening than met the eye, but it took a while to sort of come out into the open. Uh, things were on the move. Um, but product design is, is a bit more sort of fleet of foot and moves faster. And I would say a lot was happening by then. Everybody in Britain at the time said it's not enough, but you know, the, the, the idea was there, the movement was there, I, I would say. But to an outsider, I quite understand you know, the, the general appearance of things was, was pretty dreary. Lady at the back. So... You've spoken a lot about how uh, Bauhaus influenced uh, design and visual design. What about all the performance art that they were doing? Because that stuff was pretty wild. How has that influenced the rest of the world? Well, I mean, that's quite a big question. Um, in we have an exhibition on at the moment, which is one of the chapters of our project, which is called Still Undead at um, Nottingham Contemporary. And in, in that exhibition, we, there's a section of it which is um, looking at the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, and looking at the way that some of those kind of Bauhaus performances, uh, particularly uh, Oscar Schlemmer's Tridic Ballet, um, but also some of the kind of masquerade that went on at the parties, filtered into popular culture. Um, so not really through, you know, some of these sort of legacies that we're talking about in the United States where you have teachers coming and passing on kind of Bauhaus ideas, but much more through appropriation 
And what we set up in that, that space is um, a kind of uh, visual, some visual parallels between Bauhaus performances and performances by people like Lee Bowery, um, the band that called themselves the Bauhaus, named themselves after the Bauhaus, and referred indeed to Bauhaus theatre as an influence. Um, so I think it can, I mean, there is a, obviously a kind of, um, a much more kind of conventional art historical legacy to that, but in our project, we really we were quite interested, fascinated in this idea that the Bauhaus could just be sort of picked up by young people many decades later and appropriated in a way that Bauhaus obviously couldn't imagine at the time. Can I yeah. add something to that? I sometimes wonder whether the Oscar, the legacy of Oscar Schlemmer wasn't the Teletubbies. Uh, but um, more seriously, uh, in Britain from 1911, the first year the Russian Ballet Company came, uh, from then on, dance, um, quite serious artistic ex and experimental dance, was one of the liveliest art forms in Britain. Dance was something we didn't miss out on. Um, and uh, through into the 1930s when British companies with mainly British dancers were created, which were the ancestors of the Royal Ballet. Uh, certainly the style in which they worked was more or less classical, but not always. And there were more fringe experimental things. Diaghilev had some very experimental choreography and set designs, uh, Nam Garber's um, sort of celluloid sets for La Chatte in 1926. You know, I don't think anybody knew what um, Schlemmer was doing, probably. They only had still photographs to work from. Very few people would have actually seen those things and reported back. But popular dance culture, dance halls, um, fancy dress balls, Chelsea Arts Ball, all these kind of things, dressing up, going out, doing crazy stuff on the dance floor. We were, all, we were doing it all anyway. I don't think we needed the Bauhaus to tell us how. <laughs> Thank you. There was a gentleman to your left, yep. Uh, hello. Uh, this is kind of, again, sorry to bring it up again, but challenging Alan's point about um, taking it out of history and then it not being, um, you know, not really seeing the effects of it. There's, there's kind of two points I, I want to kind of draw from that. Is um, I was wondering if you wanted to comment on the kind of the melting pot idea that you had from the Bauhaus. So the bringing together of it and of Kandinsky, of all these big... Um, kind of uh, movers and shakers in the 1920s um, and kind of is that not something which is kind of worth celebrating and something which is worth bringing through and then also the kind of notion of um, Walter Gropius as kind of uh, political genius and political mastermind and how he managed to create such a legacy out of something which it kind of seems like you're arguing wasn't really that much um, in terms of actually bringing new ideas to the table so maybe I just want to invite you both to comment on that as well. Maybe Grant first. I mean, I think it's again, it's it's um, it's not an all or nothing thing. I mean, it's 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 kind of trying to um, have a more measured view on the Bauhaus. It, it's clear that there were, and I think Alan made this point at some, you know, that the, he made some incredible um, choices in terms of the artists that he persuaded to come to the Bauhaus, and I think that's one reason why the Bauhaus legacy is so strong, because those artists, whether or not the Bauhaus uh, helped to um, further their careers, have become, you know, some of the most important um, figures in early 20th century art. Um, and so I think that the Bauhaus obviously profited from that. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I don't know, in my understanding of Gropius, he 
was somebody that was working in an extremely complicated situation, both politically and financially, and he did manage to keep the Bauhaus going until he resigned and handed over to Hannes Meyer, um, and he did promote it really effectively, so I wouldn't be quite so down on Gropius as maybe Alan is. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, realistically, yes, it was an extraordinary achievement, but did he really have to do it? Uh, I'm slightly asking. Uh, I would take as one sort of counterexample, uh, there was a school in Berlin called the Reimann School, which later came to London and operated for about three years. And this was a design school that paid its own way. Uh, it didn't have to be supported by a reluctant municipality. Um, you know, it didn't have internal rows. People went there and learned rather more practical subjects, um, photography, fashion, uh, poster design, window dressing, um, things that you could go into a job with. Uh, the Bauhaus went by a very complicated, uh, elevated sort of route uh, to leave you somewhere where you might get a job, you might be able to set up a factory, as many of them did, and produce things, but uh, you could have probably got there faster another way. Um, and uh, the question of Clay and Gandinsky, uh, yes, they were great names to have. Um, I think they acted more as mentors than instructors. Um, I get the impression that a lot of students could really, couldn't really understand what they were trying to put across, but they were nice people to have around. Uh, and they both got a salary. This was the thing. Artists like that. Uh, and, and in Dessau, they got nice houses to live in. Um, and they, they were, Nicholas Fox Weber notes this, at times <coughs> when they were in financial straits, and uh, it was kind of, will the staff take a voluntary salary cut until we get back on the level? Those two never would. They said, no, we get paid what we get paid. Mm. But I think someone like Clay was hugely important for, for example, the weaving workshop where he was master of form. And, you know, in the, you know, the way that the people like Annie Albers and um, other weavers talk about Clay, I mean, and also the lessons they learned from him in terms of color theory and, and theory of form, they kept those concepts and they used them subsequently throughout their career. So I think that Clay was, had a huge impact in, in the weaving workshop. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think it's, uh... Okay, we've got, we've got three more people wishing to ask questions, and I think we'll have to wrap it up after that. So, gentleman over there, yes? Um, I come from a point of uh, ignorance uh, on this subject, but you've talked a lot about the importance of form uh, within Bauhaus. Um, but you've said very little on function, and I would question whether in many instances their designs are functional. For instance, chairs that are uncom not comfortable mm. to sit on, milk jugs that don't pour without dripping and so forth. What are your views on that? Okay, so form <laughs> following function, briefly. I think that, that, was, I think that was Hannes Meyer's critique when he came to the Bauhaus. He said it reminded him of Dornach, you know, in this kind of, you know, he's critiquing these weird geometric pots. And, um, yeah, I think, we, I think the, the, that, that, that argument was taking place within the Bauhaus, actually, okay. the one that you bring up. Can we take the next two questions, one after another, and then I'll throw them over to our speakers. I wanted to ask, I'll probably forget what I was really going to say. Um, how much do you feel the establishment prevented the development of any of modern architecture in this country and 
possibly in particular, when you look at places like the Delaware Pavilion and you look at um, High and Over and all of those elements, they were isolated. We have two, three um, modernist buildings here in Ilkley's, Pilotti, Flatbush, whatever. And I know of an instance in Cheshire where a person bought land to prevent further um, houses being built by a Dutch architect en route to America. Well, he went to America because he couldn't develop um, because the Pilotti were not acceptable. And what you got was a mishmash of Tudor beacon all around it. Okay, so and now when you look at what the establishment is producing for, for the mass housing now, it doesn't bear thinking about okay, estates. So if we take that one with the, the final one, please. Thank you. Um, I Just two points I wanted to make. One is that when you get a group of creative people together, they don't always get on all the time. And so that's why sometimes utopian ideas don't actually um, last, even though they are dispersed throughout the world. Um, I was very interested in the Itten uh, reference because I understood that um, what Johannes Itten had given was a lot of information and thought about color, which has perpetrated itself as well as clay down through the ages. So there are legacies even though when you put a, a group of creative people together, it's not very usual that they get on for very long. And the other thing I wanted to say was that the arts and craft movement in Britain was the same, that they broke up because people had certain set ideas and the other creatives didn't quite go with them. And finally, that Leeds itself was one of the places where you actually learnt by doing when the weaving business came in and the Leeds Polytechnic that was then brought into Leeds University was a place where people from all over Yorkshire came to learn how to weave and therefore how to design weaving and colour. Thank you. So, two questions, perhaps mm, brief answers yeah, if we may. The first, the first, first one, one I'll throw to Alan uh, and the last yeah. one. Yes, um, architecture, it's not the establishment, it's people are the problem. Um, most people don't understand why modern architecture is necessary. Why they find it offensive is more difficult to say, but uh, they do. Um, and uh, their views are reflected in the planning system, I would say, rather than the other way around. Um, and I'd like to know about the Dutch architect afterwards, please. Um, the weaving, what's interesting is Leeds and Bradford were places a German and a Hungarian um, people came to, to to learn the, the business. So Marianne Straub, who stayed in England, came from Switzerland, and uh, Tibor Reich, uh, who came from Hungary and was still here when the war broke out, so he remained. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very two-way thing. Um, I think you. maybe just final yes. thing I'd like to add and um, to sort of promote about the Bauhaus was, was the seriousness with, with which they took the design process. So, for example, weaving. I don't know if it was the same in the Ryman School, but, for example, in, in the weaving workshop, um, you had um, a bunch of people that were essentially streamed into that because they were women. Um, but then they turned this into a, a very innovative space, and they also wrote a lot about textiles for the first time. So there wasn't really a discourse around textiles before the Bauhaus weaver started to write about it. And I think that was uh, one of the achievements of the school that's often overlooked. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'd like to thank you for being 
such an attentive and interested and interesting audience. I'd like you to join me in thanking our two wonderful speakers this afternoon, Alan Powers and Grant Watson. Thank you. <laughs>